Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. <laughs> that was freaking brutal. That was brutal to watch. We all did it. I respect that you did it. I respect that you went on YouTube and you followed us down this black hole that you said, you know what I'm going to do with my life? I'm going to spend three hours watching the most painful loss in the history of the New York Mets. And that's all I could think about. All I could think about watching this game, game seven of the 2006 NLCS. Oh, by the way, welcome to Rico Bronia and welcome to the big rewatch of game seven of the 2006 NLCS. Please rate our pod and click subscribe on our pod. And do whatever funky things you want to do to our pod. You know the pod, Rico Bronia, the one that decided to put you in a hellhole of depression by watching Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS? That's us. But watching this game, and this is the first time I watched this game. I was at the game. I lived the game. We all did. But this was the first time I went back and watched it. And what it reinforces to me before we break down every aspect of this game is that I think this was the worst loss in the history of the Mets. Now, maybe, maybe if we rewatched game one of the 2000 world series or game five of the 2000 world series or game one of the 2015 world series or game six of the 99 NLCS, maybe I'd have a different view. Maybe I have this bias towards the fact that we just rewatched this, but this effing sucked. This was the biggest cock tease I think we have ever had as Met fans. Because what pained me throughout this game was that 
we thought we had it. Like everything about this game, I thought we had it. So let's start right from the top, all right? And what's so funny, not funny, what's so sick about watching this game is it's recent enough where I really remember certain moments. Not I remember, I really remember certain moments. And then when you see it again, it reinforces it. So let's go right back to the top of the first inning. And let's all remember that Oliver Perez on three days rest is starting this game. And put yourself in the mindset of what Oliver Perez was back then. We didn't hate him yet. He just was the throw-in in the Roberto Hernandez trade after Dwaner Sanchez got in that stupid taxi, the Xavier Nady trade. And he had pitched a few games earlier in the NLCS and was okay, but he wasn't great. And now we're relying on him on short rest in game seven of the NLCS. And he gets the first two outs pretty easily against David Eckstein and Preston Wilson. And then this is the most underrated effing moment. Albert Pujols, who at this moment in time is God, like he is the premier right-handed hitter in all of baseball. We are facing a walking God. Pops it up. As soon as I saw the Pujols pop up, and again, first time I'm seeing it from TV, I remembered how I felt when Carlos Delgado could not catch the infield pop-up. I was convinced it was the one moment in this game before the bitter end where I thought we were completely fucked. Because you're telling Oliver Perez, who sucks, who comes into this game, I'm looking at my scorecard, because yes, I did score this game. He comes into this game, you know, with a what ERA from the season, a 7 ERA? Like this guy, we can't trust him. We're putting him in a tough spot. And he just gets a one, two, three inning, but no wait. It's handed back because Carlos Delgado can't catch a pop-up. And I remember vividly in that moment, and even re-watching this, thinking Jim Edmonds is going to make him pay. Like, there's no way Oliver Perez is going to overcome the fact that Carlos Delgado couldn't catch a freaking pop-up. And seeing Oliver Perez have the poise to so casually get Juan Encarnacion, it wasn't Jim Edmonds. I'm looking at my scorecard. Now I'm remembering. Juan Encarnacion, the cleanup hitter, to hit a lazy fly ball to right field. You got to admit, that shows a lot of balls. Like, even re-watching it, did you forget that Oliver Perez had balls seeing him get Encarnacion a pop-up after Carlos Delgado decided to take a giant crap on the field by missing a pop-up? Yeah, I mean, I didn't remember that off the bat. I just remembered that Perez really got signed because of this game. Like his extension became because of how good he pitched here. I didn't remember how good he pitched, but he was in that first inning, especially it just looked like he was on point. And that's all they kept on talking about too. They talked about about Jim Tracy, what he said, where he's landing. If he's not landing in a certain spot, he's going to be a little (laughs) bit wild. I'm like, wow, they're just ripping this guy to shreds. They're talking about his record three and 13. Like he sucked. And yet he's starting game seven. It's so weird because we have like different versions of Oliver Perez. So the the final verdict on Oliver Perez is he has a couple of good years, gets the dumb contract, and then is horrible. So a lot of Met fans have negative views towards him. But this was the new Oliver Perez. This was the guy we just acquired. And like I mentioned, he was sort of a throw-in in that trade. And you brought up his stats from the season with Pittsburgh. They weren't very good. And we're forced to start him in a seventh game. And he's a young pitcher. And it's like, what the hell are we expecting from him? Like, what are we really expecting? And the atmosphere watching this game on TV 
and you could feel it. And I certainly remember it being in the building. The atmosphere was through the roof. I mean, everybody is standing at Shea Stadium from first pitch on. So imagine that feeling if you're Oliver Perez. You're in game seven. You're facing the storied St. Louis Cardinals. You're facing one of the greatest hitters in the history of the sport in Albert Pujols. You think you got him out. You don't have him out. And you're doing it, by the way, while 54,000 people are standing on their feet and they're screaming. So I, I got to give Perez major credit because getting through that first inning after the Delgado drop was pretty incredible. Now we get to the bottom of the first inning. And this is the other moment where you think it's our night. Where you think like this could be a party night. Jeff Supon gets the first two guys out. And remember, Jeff Supon had also pitched brilliantly a few games earlier against the Mets in game four of the NLCS. Or game three of the NLCS. One of the two, I forget. And there's Carlos Beltran. And every time I see Carlos Beltran in this game, we're all going to get that same feeling. That same feeling of inevitability of we know where this is going. But think about what he does in the first inning. He goes opposite field against Supon, hits that double to left field. Two outs, runner on second. Delgado draws the walk, and here's David Wright. And David Wright, and you could ask, by the way, Hoff, you could ask Salicata about this. Because back many years ago, me and Sal would argue about the Mets. And Sal didn't like David Wright. He called him uh, the golden boy, I think is what he called him. And a part of our arguments was about how he didn't do anything in the NLCS. That was his point. Like, he didn't do anything. And, and he's sort of right. Like, David Wright had a very quiet NLCS. But in the first inning, and this was always the moment I would kind of refer to when Sal and I would argue, is that David Wright drove in the first run. He drove in the first run. But what would be reminded was, well, it was a blooper to right field. Who cares if it was a blooper to right field? Line drive, 50 miles an hour. In the time before exit velocity, he hit a ball. No one caught it. The Mets had the lead. And so David Wright, despite doing very, very little in this NLCS, which I acknowledge, he did not have a great postseason, drove in the first run. He hits the fly ball to right field. It falls in in front of Encarnacion. Beltron scores. And we are 24 outs away from the National League pennant. Think about it that way. We are 24 outs away from the pennant. And Sean Green, with a chance to bust it even more, with first and third two outs, hits that line drive it off the bat. You're thinking up 2 nothing, And Scott Rowland's just standing right there. But they got to run off Jeff Supon. We scratched out a run against Jeff Supon. We had that little blooper from David Wright. And now it's back to our man, Oliver Perez. Can you hold this lead? Can you somehow take us to the promised land? Not that one run was going to be enough. But how about this? How about the fact that that one fucking run we saw in the first inning was the only run they were going to score? That was it. Little did we know. Well, Sometimes well, in sports, if you only knew, you only knew, you knew. And we didn't know, but we should have known. Know well, saying? they they kept on throwing up stats from Jeff Supon, and I forget exactly his his numbers, but they were stupid against the Mets. They were like ridiculous. I want to say he was like his ERA was like in the high ones or low yeah. twos. Like he was, great was just, he he killed us. He, he killed did. us. And like so, for the fact that we got a one run, we got one run to start the the game. It's like, oh, my God, we're going to break this guy open. And that just clearly never happened. He, nah, he settled down after that, man. 
I mean, think about this. Jeff Supon gave up that base hit to David Wright. That's the last hit he gave up in the game. It's, it's, oh God, it's just, he is a Met killer. You know, you want to put a Met killer on. I mean, Jeff Supon was certainly a Met killer and he did it. And this is the part that's so impressive. That crowd, and I felt it again watching this game, was as loud and as into it as a crowd can humanly be. I mean, it was electric. You could feel it. And you could see it through every single inning. The crowd never sat down. Like, the crowd was up the entire time. What really hurt them, and I don't want to kill Perez for this because he pitched a hell of a game, was that second inning. You know, you call that the shutdown inning after your team gives you a lead. Tom Glavin was so bad at it. It's why game five of the NLCS still haunts me as well. But the first pitch he throws in that second inning, Jim Edmonds ropes in a right field for a base hit. And then he's ahead of Yadier Molina, who had a very good postseason. You know, before he hits that home run, which we'll get to later, you know, Yadi, who did not have a career track record. I mean, during the season was like a 212 hitter. He was not the guy we now know him as who actually put together a reasonable stick throughout his major league career. He was a hit machine and he got a base hit on an 0-2 count, which really set that inning up. Because back in the day, I don't know if you guys remember this, but pitchers used to hit. I don't know if you guys remember that. And so Tony LaRussa, after Yachty got that base hit to set up first and third one out, did something pretty damn interesting in front of the pitcher spot, in front of Jeff Supon, who wasn't a bad hitter, by the way, if uh, memory serves correct. He was actually one of those pitchers that could handle himself. They went safety squeeze. The Cardinals tied the game on a Ronnie Belliard safety squeeze. He got the bunt down. There's nothing Jose Valentin could have done other than just throw to first base for the out. And that's how the Cardinals tied this game up at one on a safety squeeze from the great Tony LaRusa. And look to Ali Perez's credit. He got Jeff Supon out and to Ali Perez's credit in that third inning, he gave up a leadoff double to David Eckstein and he got out of that too. He got out of that too, in which the Mets showed a smartness of let's not let Albert Pujols beat us because one on, runner on second, one out, Albert's up. They put his ass on base, and one Encarnacion, who didn't do much, grounds into a double play, started by the great David Wright. So Ali did a pretty good job of dancing through that third inning after David Eckstein ripped that double. And also watching this game reminded me this about David Eckstein. And I, I forget which moment it was in this game, but there was a ground ball to shortstop. And David obviously made the play. He was a sure-handed shortstop. It was actually the first play of the game because the first play of the game was Jose Reyes grounding out the short. David Eckstein reminded me of how painful it looked for him to throw to first base. Like, I forgot about that. Like, David Eckstein's throw to first base looked like a little leaguer who was struggling to get it across the diamond. Now, he would do it effectively. He would do it well. But... It had been a while, Pete, since I had seen David Eckstein's Little League throw from shortstop to first base. No, I mean, uh, yeah, you remember all these little isms, like the fact that you're talking about Yadi Molina, what, you know, early in his career, what he was missing. You know what he was missing? All his freaking tattoos. I mean, the guy was basically, <laughs> I, I didn't see a single one. It was unbelievable. I'm like, now the guy retired, he's got like full body tattoos everywhere. I know. He's a different freaking human being. He was a pain in the ass. He's one of those guys that, you know, I think back on and he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything like evil, but I just don't like him. It's very, it's very, very difficult to just not like him. You know, you watch this game 
and you remembered that the Met offense, which was so good during the regular season, and you see this lineup that they trotted out, Reyes and LaDuca and Beltran and Delgado and Wright and Green and Valentin and Andy Chavez becoming the everyday left fielder batting eight. This was such a good lineup, and they struggled so much in this game. Like every rally, and they didn't have a lot of them, felt like such a struggle. They went down one, two, three in the second. They go down one, two, three in the third inning. Delgado draws the leadoff walk. They get nothing out of David Wright, who grounds out. Sean Green strikes out. Valentin actually got hit by a pitch, which really set them up and gave them an opportunity before Andy Chavez, who off the bat hit one pretty well to center field. Andy could have been a hero a little bit earlier. And it got roped in by Jim Edmonds, and that inning goes absolutely nowhere. Oliver Perez gets through the fourth inning. And then I thought we saw some really interesting managing in the top of the fifth inning of this game. Because remember the strength of the Mets at this time. We have a really good lineup, even though we're not hitting. And we have a really good bullpen. Chad Bradford, Pedro Feliciano, Guillermo Moda, Aaron Heilman, Billy Wagner. That's a pretty good bullpen. I know there were some negative moments about some of the guys I just mentioned, but how the Mets had gotten to that point was a really quick hook on their starting pitching. You know, John Main would pitch four innings. Let's go to the bullpen. Tommy Glavin would be the one guy you'd push a little bit. And so in a game seven with Oliver Perez on the mound, you would think Willie Randolph was going to be as super aggressive using that bullpen more so than ever. And he had been aggressive to begin with. Again, think about John Main's earlier starts in this postseason we had seen Willie go to that bullpen very very early like I'll, I'll turn the page earlier to game six the night before he got John Main out in the sixth inning one on one out he'd given up two hits hadn't given up a run he'd walk a bunch of guys and he made the right move going to Chad Bradford to get Scott rolling keep that in mind by the way okay picture this it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Chad Bradford came in in a big spot in the sixth inning the night before with a 2-0 lead, and he got Scott Rowland to ground into a double play. And Willie meticulously would use his bullpen to kind of weave his way in and out 
and find the right scenarios and the right matchups. Feliciano against the lefty, Bradford against the right righties, and that's how he managed. So knowing that, reminding you of that, we go to the fifth inning. And think about what Willie Randolph did here, which was just so fascinating. He gives up a leadoff hit to Ronnie Belliard, who's the eighth place hitter. They get a bunt down from Jeff Supon, right? So top of the fifth inning, 1-1 game, runner on first, one out, third time around the batting order, which I guess wasn't a thing in 2006. And you have Eckstein, you've got Preston, and you've got Pujols. And Willie sticks with Oliver Perez. Ali hits David Eckstein. You got two on, you got one out. He sticks with Oliver Perez. Strikes out Preston Wilson, who was pretty much a disaster in this series. Great. Now you got Albert Pujols coming up. You've got first and second. You got two outs. It's a tie game. It's Oliver Perez. It's the fifth inning where you have pulled your starters before and the best hitter in the universe is at the plate. And so I see, and I did not remember this. I admit this. I see Willie come out to the mound. We all did. Willie runs to the mound, which is a sign of he's not taking him out. How do you not take him out? See, I always always want to be fair about first guessing and second guessing. I do remember first guessing this. I do remember saying, okay, hey, hey. We got four and two-thirds out of Ollie P. Are we feeling good? Like, can we get him the hell out of here? And Willie Randolph sticks with him to face Albert Pujols. And again, Oliver Perez with the balls of stone on two pitches to get Pujols to pop up the shortstop. And that's another moment where I think to myself, we're winning this freaking game. Wow. Holy crap. Oliver Perez stays in the game. He faces Albert Pujols. He pops him up in a situation where, why is he in the game? I'm thinking they're going to win. And then, and this is Will. Willie's getting nuts. Bottom of the fifth inning, Oliver Perez leads off the inning. He keeps him in the game. Like, this is maniacal what Randolph was doing with Perez. And sometimes being maniacal is good. Because I think back to another game in Met history where I saw a manager push a starter further than I thought he would. And that was Terry Collins and Jacob DeGrom in game five of the NLDS in 15. And it worked great. Like he got six innings out of him. Let's have a party. But this was so surprising. Even watching it again, it was surprising. He lets Perez bat in the fifth inning. He lines out. Reyes and Leduca do nothing. And here we go. Top of the sixth inning. 1-1. I don't even know Perez's pitch account. Because they don't tell us. Isn't that a reminder of the different world we live in? We have no idea what his pitch count is. There is no pitch count on the graphic. There is no reminder. Now, maybe you guys saw one and I missed it. I never saw his pitch count. And I guess that shows you that it didn't matter. It wasn't about the pitch count. It was about, do you like him in this scenario? And obviously, we are talking about an inning that will live in Met history right now. The top of the sixth inning of Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS, also known as the inning where Gary Cohen somehow pushed his way into the radio booth and pushed, I think it was Tom McCarthy out because Gary Cohen went to TV and he wanted to do some playoff action. Like, who could blame him, right? Gets one in Carnacion, ground out, walks Jim Edmonds. Okay, timeout, timeout, timeout. 
So Oliver Perez walks Jim Edmonds, his second walk of the game. He walks a lefty. And now Scott Rowland is up with a runner on first and one out in the sixth inning. There is no first guess, maybe in my lifetime. Now, Terry Collins, Matt Harvey, game five Royals. Okay. That sticks with me as much as this. Willie Randolph needed to get Oliver Perez out of this effing game. Chad Bradford is warming up. He's ready. Now, what did I say three minutes ago? In game six, Bradford came in to face Scott Rowland and got him to ground into a double play. It is the exact same situation. Not score-wise, but runner on first, one out. Perez just walked Jim Edmonds. I want you to answer this question, Pete. Why the hell did Willie Randolph keep Oliver Perez in to face Scott Rowland? Like, is there a good reason? There is, and I'm gonna. I'm gonna. It's it's not that difficult. Maybe it's too surface level, but a he was clearly batting battling injury, right? Roland was definitely hurting. Yes, and and that game, if you watched how he was swinging the bat and how they were throwing, you know, up and in fastballs, and he just couldn't get around on it. I think that was their approach. I think that Willie had full trust that Oliver Perez was going to keep it in that spot, in that zone, and Roland couldn't do anything with it. So even if he did hit it, it wasn't going to be anything worthwhile. Well, we screwed that one up. <laughs> Scott Roland was definitely hurt, as talked about on this broadcast. But the night earlier, John Main, who had that high-rising fastball, was pulled for Chad Bradford. So unless you're worried about Roland facing Bradford two days in a row, maybe, uh, this move made no sense. And I, I give Joe Buck and Tim McCarver credit. They're talking about it. And, and it wasn't a great hearing Tim McCarver. I love Tim McCarver. I know that some baseball fans maybe didn't love him. I did. I always thought Tim McCarver was teaching us baseball, even though at this point in my life, he wasn't teaching me baseball. But when I was like five and I was watching the Mets, he was teaching me baseball. You know, him and Ralph Kiner, that's how you learn. Those two and my dad, they were teaching me baseball. So it's really good to hear McCarver's voice. I did enjoy that over the course of the three hours. But Scott Rowland did not make us wait <laughs> because obviously the first pitch is one of the most famous moments in the history of this franchise. A ball off the bat that is gone. And watching this, and obviously we've all seen the highlight 150 times of Andy Chavez's catch, but watching it almost in quote-unquote real time, it's even more impressive than maybe we give him credit for the catch. The fact that he's on the dead run, the fact that he's got no time to kind of set himself up to leap up. Like he is sprinting towards that old wall in left field at Shea and he leaps up and he makes the catch and then immediately knows, Hey, I should try to double off Jim Edmonds. Like why not? And he did. And then that pump fist from Delgado, that pimp, pimp not pump fist, the pimp, the pimp pump. Fist pump. He's supposed to say fist first, right? Not pump fist. P fist pump. Well, he pumped his fist or he fist pumped, but you don't really... <laughs> pump fisting is not really a thing now. Yeah, probably not. Whatever. <laughs> Point is, Delgado <laughs> gives that little, like, hook. And it took me back to that moment. And what I thought and what I said at Chase Stadium that night to my dad, I said to him, we're going to win the World Series. I did. I did say that. And I shouldn't have said it. And maybe if I was 40 instead of 23, I wouldn't have said it. 
But I said it, and I, I couldn't have been the only person that said that. I couldn't have been the only person that thought that. But that literally was the reaction, and it's so stupid when you think about it because as great as that play was, it is the sixth inning. It is 1-1. There's a long way to go. This was not a bases-clearing triple that put the Mets up 5-1 to one and the party is on. It was an incredible moment. It was a shocking moment. But all it did was maintain the status quo. It's all it did. So I apologize. I apologize to everybody who didn't say that, and I did. And I remember saying it, and it sucks knowing what we know now. Yeah, but Ev, like, name one Met fan who didn't say that. Like, I had people in a bar that were Yankee fans be like, dude, you guys are winning this game. Like, it was obvious this is like a no watch a no hitter, and you see people just making crazy plays. Like, oh my god, it's gonna happen today. That was the feeling that when when some some games are just special and yeah. you're, they're happening in real time. So you have to take it take it in. That was this moment. That what was hap- That's what was happening to all the Mets fans. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you guys came back down to earth real quick, but I did because the bottom of the sixth inning haunts me. You know, when you think back to this game and certainly rewatching it reminded me of this, the bottom of the sixth inning, I don't want to say is the game because that's not fair. You're still in a tie game at home, but let's go through this bottom of the sixth inning and why it still haunts me all these years later and rewatching it. It was one of the more difficult innings to rewatch. You just had the moment of Indy making that catch. And now it's the sixth inning and you know, Beltron taps out back to the mound. Okay. No big deal. But then you get the walk to Delgado. And all of a sudden, there's a rally. And David Wright hits a little chopper to third base that Roland is kind of hesitating on. Do I go to second? Am I trying to turn two? Do I just throw to first base and get the second out? And Scott Roland, who is in the Hall of Fame, newly in the Hall of Fame because of his glove, makes one of the worst throws you'll ever see Scott Roland make. And it goes into the stands. And so if you thought Andy Chavez making a remarkable catch in left field was a sign we're going to win the World Series, how about the Brooks Robinson of our era making an error that sets the Mets up with second and third and nobody out? It's not just an error. Like, errors happen in baseball. Scott Rowland made it. The great Scott Rowland, the Brooks Robinson of 2006, makes an airmailed throw, and we're set up with second and third one out. They put Sean Green on. Oh, quick aside. So when the Mets are watching Sean Green take his four, and we saw Albert Pujols get an intentional walk earlier in the game, I'm thinking to myself, wow, we have to sit here and watch an actual intentional walk? We're so used to the fact that now you just put those little fingers up, and the guy goes to first base. But you're set up with bases loaded, one out, and Jose Valentin at the plate. And that one-two pitch he swung at. Oh, God. Oh, my God. All he had to do was put the ball in freaking play, and he's swinging at a pitch that Jeff Supon just buries in the dirt. Valentin misses it, two outs. And so the Mets right there miss a golden opportunity to get a run without even getting a hit, which, by the way, they hadn't had yet since the first inning. Jose Valentin, too, unfortunately. Like, I remember him that year. The first half, I want to say the first few months, 
were pretty like legit. Like he was a solid player for the Mets. And then that last month of the season, September, was just god awful. And I think it carried into the playoffs. He just couldn't hit a lick anymore. And that's with that that was a huge hole that we had offensively. Yeah, he ended up going six for thirty-three with two doubles in the two series against the Dodgers and the Cardinals. He had a great year that year, like you said, and and he was late in his career. And I thought he played some pretty good defense at second base, but he was 36 years old. And, you know, it just ended. And in that spot, more than anything, hit the ball to right field. Just hit the ball in the air. The Mets get a run. I don't know how this game transpired. Obviously, it's a completely different game if they have any kind of lead, especially the way it's managed down the stretch. But him swinging at a pitch in the dirt, awful. It was just awful. And then Andy Chavez comes up. And here's the thing about Andy. Andy makes the great catch in Met history. Andy Chavez was just not a major league hitter at that time. Like, he wasn't hitting at all in the postseason. He was literally there for his defense. He was there for what we saw on the top of the uh, top of the inning. And we relied on him. And he swung at the first pitch. It's a lazy fly ball to center field. And I felt it at the time. And I certainly felt it watching it now on YouTube years later. It took the air out of our sails. Like, you get this great moment from Chavez making the catch. And then in the bottom of the inning, you're set up with another potential great moment because of an error by a guy that never makes an error. You've got bases loaded one out without a hit, by the way. Like I said, like that inning is set up without any kind of base hits and you get nothing out of it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Absolutely nothing out of it. And now we get to the latter innings of this game. They finally go to Chad Bradford. Willie Randolph does. Pitches a very nice, clean and tidy one, two, three, seventh inning. Jeff Supon, after a shaky sixth, pitches a nice and neat and tidy one, two, three inning. I do have to admit this uh, in the bottom of the seventh. Bottom of the seventh inning, they're going to pinch hit for Chad Bradford. And Michael Tucker comes up as a pinch hitter. I had forgotten that Michael Tucker was a Met. I have to admit, like when I saw him up there, I was like, Michael Tucker? What? And then like it came back to me like, oh yeah, he was like a spring training invite. He was sort of around and then he was a bat off the bench. Yeah, Michael Tucker was a Met. So I I don't know if I'm the only one that just kind of like a bolt of lightning. Like, oh shoot, that's right. He was a Met. And he flied out the center field. He did nothing. Trust me, if he had a Sean Dunstan at bat, like the 1999 NLCS, I probably would have remembered he was a man. I think if he got on base with anything, I would have been like, oh, yeah, Michael Tucker. Because I remember Sean Dunstan so fondly. And really, it's one at bat. It was the at bat in game five of the 99 NLCS. Uh, the Robin Ventura walk-off, uh, walk-off grand slam single where Dunstan had that war of an at bat that started the inning in the rain. That's it. So, did you forget Michael Tucker was a Met Pete? Uh, I once I saw him in the uniform, I was like you, like like you said, oh yeah, that's right. But I I remembered him more of like was he an Astro and a Brave and stuff like that? Was that what Kansas he was City Royal? Yeah, Brave. Yeah, he had bounced around. around. He was a good player, but by this point, it's the end of his career. He's a left-handed bat off the bench. 
but they do nothing. Like Tucker comes up, pinch hitter, they do nothing in the seventh inning. In the eighth inning, Willie goes to Aaron Hammond. And I'm not sure what Aaron Hammond's legacy is to us as Met fans these days. You know, he was an interesting Met. He was a starting pitcher. He gets moved to the bullpen, had some success, then started to be terrible. I feel like Aaron Hammond doesn't get crap for this game. Like, he gets crap as maybe being a mediocre reliever, but I don't feel like Aaron Hammond gets crap for what ended up happening in this game because what ended up happening in this game wasn't really all his fault. So he comes in for the eighth and pitches a clean inning, gets the first two guys out, falls behind Pujols. They just put him on base, which was smart. So it was an intentional walk, but it was not really an intentional walk. And then they strike out one in Carnacion. So Aaron gives you that nice, clean, tidy eighth inning. We get another tease in the bottom of the eighth because Beltron draws that leadoff walk against Supan, and we finally get that crappy man out of this game. I was about to call him a shithead, but I felt like that was too harsh. I feel like I've cursed a lot, so I'm going to take that back. We finally get Jeff Supan out of this game, and Randy Flores comes in and looks like Sandy Koufax. He strikes out Delgado. He strikes out David Wright. Sean Green hits the easiest ground ball to first base. And that's it. And we're not even we're not even threatening. So at this point, this Met offense had managed two base hits, and they both came in the first inning. The Beltron double that started the bottom of the first with two outs, and the David Wright balloon pop up in a right field. That's it. Like this offense had nothing against Jeff Supon and Randy Flores. And then we get to the ninth inning. Why? Does Billy Wagner not pitch? Fair question. Now, I will admit, I am glad he didn't pitch. I was actually a believer that Billy Wagner should not come in this game. Now, you may say to yourself, well, why do you ask? Billy Wagner had sucked in this series. And quite frankly, Billy Wagner gets away scot-free for the way he pitched in this National League Championship Series. Because in the previous game, game six, the night before, the Mets had a 4-0 lead going into the ninth inning. And Willie Randolph went to Billy Wagner. Not even a save situation. Just, hey, can you get these last three outs? Our season's on the line. He gave up a base hit. He gave up a double. So Taguchi, who's also known as Mr. Billy Wagner, he's Billy Wagner's dad, ripped the two-run double. And all of a sudden, the Cardinals brought the tying run of the plate in game six of the NLCS. Now, to Billy Wagner's credit, he got David Eckstein out, and he was able to get through it. Great, let's have a party. But he did not make things easy in game six of the NLCS. And then you've got game two of the NLCS. Remember that one? That's where this series sort of got away. The Mets are up 3-0 in the first inning. They're up 6-4 to four in the seventh inning. And Guillermo Moto was actually the one that kind of gave the game up. He gave up this brutal two-run double to Scott Spezio that Sean Green almost caught. And, and Moda deserves blame for that. But in the ninth inning of a tie game, and I'm bringing this up for a freaking reason. In the tie game, top of the ninth inning, Billy Wagner came in and immediately gave up a home run to So Taguchi, which gave the Cardinals the lead. And to make matters worse, he then gave up an RBI double to Scott Spezio ahead of the count and an RBI single to Juan Encarnacion to the point where Billy Wagner did not finish the inning, came out of the inning. Roberto Hernandez had to come in and clean up his mess. So Billy Wagner had pitched in two games in this NLCS, a tie game at home in which he took a giant dump on the field 
and then game six of the NLCS in which he turned a 4 nothing lead and made it exciting. Why is Billy Wagner not referred to as Armando Benitez? Why? But why do we just crap on Benitez and we never talk about Billy Wagner? Well, I'm going to talk about Billy Wagner. And it's very, 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 very much related to Game 7 of the NLCS. So when I ask you, we all ask ourselves, why didn't the closer, who's supposedly going to the Hall of Fame, why did he pitch the ninth inning? He didn't pitch the ninth inning because he sucked. He didn't pitch the ninth inning because Willie Randolph knew, I can't trust this guy. That's why he didn't pitch the ninth inning. So why is Aaron Heilman being asked to pitch a second inning? Because he didn't trust Billy. And I read an interview with Billy Wagner years later in which he was asked, hey, how come you didn't pitch the ninth inning of game seven? And he went and said, and this is such a loser's mentality, but he was like, yeah, I wouldn't have pitched myself either. I wasn't pitching well. Aaron Heilman was. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because you were choking in the biggest spot. Like, I don't want to be biased in talking about Billy Wagner as a Hall of Famer or not, because this has nothing to do with if he's a Hall of Famer or not. You know, you look at his whole numbers, you look at his career, but let is, let's call it like it is. With this team in 2006, he was as big of a part of a reason why they did not win as anybody. He's a big reason why they lost game two. They could have been up 2-0 in this series. And he's the reason Aaron Hallman was asked to pitch the ninth inning after pitching a clean eighth inning. So I put more of this on Billy Wagner than I do Aaron Hallman. And this is mildly discussed on the broadcast. But for the most part, it was just accepted. Okay, Aaron Hallman staying in this game. And Aaron Hallman strikes out Jim Edmonds, gives up a base hit to Scott Rowland. It was a really good at-bat by Scott. I handed it to him. It was a long at-bat. And then the very first pitch, the very first pitch that he throws to Yadi Molina, it is what it is. I mean, you want to break it down? You hit the ball over the fucking fence. That, there, you, there you go. It's, it's nice and simple. It happened. And so that's it. I mean, honestly, what are we talking about? That's why Billy Wagner didn't come in. And what I, I'd love to know is if Aaron Hammond didn't throw that hanger to Yachty and didn't hit that two-run home run, and let's say the game was tied going into the 10th inning. Would Billy Wagner have come into the game? Or would Tommy Glavin have come in the game? Because Tommy Glavin was available out of the bullpen. Would uh, Pedro Feliciano had just come in the game? Would Guillermo Moda had come in the game? Would Roberto Hernandez had come in the game? Like, who was going to pitch that 10th inning? Was it really going to be Billy Wagner? And why would it be Billy Wagner? Because that 10th inning probably would have been against the top of the order. And at some point, Tony LaRusso may have shown Billy Wagner's kryptonite, which is so Taguchi. At some point, that may have happened. Uh, I hate Billy Wagner, Huff. I don't know if you've picked up on that. I don't really like him very much. Yeah, no, I really was more of like a, a Heilman hater, not a, as much of a Wagner hater. But I understand your point. I mean, Heilman was the guy who, th listen, you could have done anything else than put Heilman in for two innings. I, partly the reason the, the, the dis dislike for Heilman is because of previous years of him complaining about not being a starting pitcher. He didn't really want to be a bullpen guy. That rubbed me the wrong way. But you're in a playoffs. You're in a big spot here. Heilman did his job for one inning. If you don't want to go to Wagner, that's fine. Go to somebody else. But Heilman just was not 
that that was his that was his kryptonite was he can't go more than one inning. Yeah, and look, he gives up a home run to a guy that you can't give up a home run to. The ninth inning, <laughs> this is this is one of those innings you could kind of recite in your sleep. And obviously, we spoke to Adam Wainwright about it. The Mets get the first two guys on base. You know, Valentin gets a base hit. Andy Chavez gets a base hit. Though Those guys could have done it two innings earlier. That would have been nice. Like, if they do it two innings earlier, maybe we're having a different discussion. And then Willie Randolph makes a decision that I don't agree with, but I get it. I don't agree with it. I didn't agree with it, but I get it. He went emotion. He went full-fledged. Cliff Floyd is banged up. He can still swing, and maybe he can pop one. And maybe this will be the Kirk Gibson moment in New York Met history. And Cliff Floyd battles out of Wainwright, and I hope you guys remember what happened. He struck out on a nasty curveball because that happens. Because Adam Wainwright had one. And I thought this at the time when I was in the ballpark that night. I was sort of happy Cliff struck out because I was really scared that if he hit the ball on the ground, it was going to be the easiest double play in the world. And that would have really short-circuited things down by two runs in the ninth inning. But the other option was to bunt. And you could have sent up, you know, Anderson Hernandez. You could have sent up Tom Glavin. Uh, I know those are obvious if you send those guys up that you're bunting. But if you lay down the bunt and there's second and third, nobody out, a one out, and now you're a base hit away from tying the game. It felt like it made more sense than going pure emotion with Cliff Floyd. Again, I get it, but I didn't love it, and I wouldn't have done it. And then Reyes hits that ball on a one-two pitch off the bat that you think, oh, Jim Edmonds had him played perfectly. And Wayno was right when we had him on about how close that 3-1 pitch was to Laduca. It was a very close pitch, but he did walk him. And then you got the the at-bat. And, you know, it's just so quick. That's what I remember about Beltron coming up. It was just so... That moment lasted very briefly. It was bing, bing, boom. It was, I'm not swinging at the first pitch. I'm swinging at the second pitch. And I'm going to stare at this nasty curveball. And that's going to be it. And then the eerie silence falls over Shea Stadium. And I wanted to punch my tablet is essentially how that went. And I keep seeing that moment over and over again, thinking if Carlos swings, what happens? Like I, I had that vision when I was in the ballpark that night that he was going to hit one to right center field, up the alley, and that's how it was going to end. He was going to rip one up the alley. Both runs would have scored, and that's how the Mets were going to win the pennant. It was going to be this epic moment, and obviously it was the complete opposite. It was just this nasty curveball that he stared at, and what could have been... Game six, 86 all over again, like a promising, incredible rally ends with such a thud and seeing them celebrate and hearing that silence at Chase Stadium and remembering the, the feeling I had walking out of that stadium. Yeah, this exercise was not fun. This was not an enjoyable experience. Sorry to laugh at that. Yeah, not, that's just, that's disturbing. I So I was at a bar. I've told the story a few times. I was at a bar waiting for my cousin to um, – there was like a battle of the bands. I was in bands back in the day. So there was a battle of bands somewhere in uh, in New York City, and we, we were waiting for this game to finish before anyone played. So it was late at night, mm. and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, no worries. You know, this, this game will be over soon. We'll watch the show, whatever. Soon as the out happened, I put my head down. I walked out of the bar 
straight to my car. And I don't remember getting home, not because I've been drinking, but because I literally was in a fog. Like that was, I didn't speak to anybody. I don't know the first word I uttered. It might've been the next day because I was just so pissed off. Yeah, and that fog we were all in, it lasted a long time because that I think what's so depressing about this game is that we didn't see the playoffs again until 2015. Like little did we know that things were about to get so much worse uh for this franchise. That's a tough rewatch. It's a very tough rewatch. And it was awkward seeing myself because <laughs> watching this game, you can see how Fox was so obnoxious in showing like every fan in the ballpark. And by the way, I never knew I was on TV for a long time. So that night, I did the overnight at WFAN. So I went on the air at 2 a.m. So after that game was over, it ended about 11.43, 11.45. I get in the car with my dad. I know I got a little bit of time. Mets Extra. Mets were on our station at the time. Steve Summers was coming on after that. And then after that, I was going to do the overnight. And my dad and I drove to Wendy's. I wanted a spicy chicken sandwich, try to make myself feel better. And they ran out of spicy chicken. And I was upset. I was like, come on, Wendy's. Like, I just need my number six. Where the hell's my spicy chicken sandwich? And then I got to Kaufman Astoria Studios where WFN used to be. And Joe Beningo was there, who was not my partner at the time. I had barely known Joe. And Joe was on with Steve Summers talking about the pain of this game and how difficult it was. And I followed them. At 2 a.m., I did the overnight that night. I think I still have the tapes of that show. Boy, I, that'd be that'd be something to listen to. I, you know what? Maybe on the next Rico Brilliant. <laughs> Would anybody want to hear that though? Highlight. I mean, I probably sound so different because it was so long ago, but that could be that. You know what? That could be interesting. <laughs> we have to we have to pull the tape on that. I'm 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 down to listen to that. I think my parents uh, audio cassetted a lot of the shows I did when I was doing overnights back then. So I can definitely try to find it. I don't remember anything about that show. I remember it was very difficult and it was very, very painful because I think sometimes when your team loses, there's anger and sometimes there's sadness. And there was a lot of sadness and a lot of shock because that team was so good and they were so much better than the Cardinals. And it just felt like this is our year. This is really going to be our year. Remember, it was the 20-year anniversary, too, of the 86 Mets. Think about that in 2006. And uh, it was not the case. It was not be. So it was a very, 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 very painful game. I did enjoy the commercial for the OC. That was kind of cool. Like, the commercials are cut out in the YouTube clip we were watching, uh, the YouTube version of this most of us were watching but at one point joe buck said tune in on tuesday for a new edition of the oc and i'm like that's my jam love the oc let's go so did that I, was fun but the did i ever did i ever tell you about the uh, i was working at uh 923 free fm at the time and i convinced tom chiasano to waste the rest of our budget dollars on a free fm commercial after the last <laughs> game on fox Oh my God! Really? I told him he's like uh, he's like this will be the rest of our promotional money for the rest of the year. I go, dude, the Mets are winning. It'll be fantastic. Everyone will be celebrating. Watching the commercial be great. I never. And nobody was watching. They all shut it off. I know. What's the word? Everybody's <laughs> like, like, I'm not watching this crap. No wonder why the station tanked. By the way, <laughs> uh, one last thing about Beltron because this is, I think, the most aggravated thing. You saw his numbers going into that game seven. 
they were crazy for the playoffs. He yeah, he, he was good did. in the postseason. Yep. yep. He he did what he was was there to do. That's the reason why the Mets brought him in. He and and that's the most frustrating thing is that was the last moment you see of him in a Mets uniform in the playoffs. It's so unfair because ultimately when you look at how everybody performed in that playoffs, Carlos Beltran performed. You know, even going back to the first inning of the game, you know, that double is what got that rally started in the first inning. And luckily he was driven in by David, but Beltron gets a bad rap. It just, he's, he's the image when it shouldn't be him. Like I gave you a rant about Billy Wagner, our anger for why things went bad that year or in that series should be more directed at Billy Wagner than they would be Beltron. They, they really should. But sometimes our anger isn't fair. Sometimes it's just not fair. And it stinks that that's the memory of Carlos Beltran. And I, and I don't know if it necessarily is for everybody, but it's certainly a part of his legacy as a member of the Mets. And I keep thinking back to the alternate history where Jason Isringhausen doesn't get hurt. And Jason Isringhausen is trying to close this game out. And Beltran, who had great success against him, hits one over the fence. That's the alternate history I hope for. But what I do know about this rewatch exercise that we did is that when we do this again, we need to watch a win. The, the losses are really, really, really tough. So when we do another rewatch, can we pick a win? We did a win last year. We did a loss this year. I think we've got to go back to a win, whether it's a win from this era or a win from the 80s or a win from the 60s or a win from the, I don't even care. I think I've talked about the idea of picking just a random Met game, like the most random Met game you could find on YouTube and just watching it. That could be a fun exercise as well. But whatever you recommend, certainly let us know. Thoughts on this game. Thoughts on how you feel. TheRicoB at gmail.com. We appreciate the interaction. TheRicoB at gmail.com. And we appreciate everybody that tried to guess what Met jersey I was wearing at that game. I will reveal the answer on the next edition of Rico Bronia. So that, thank you very much for listening, for subscribing. And hopefully you didn't cry too much and you aren't as depressed as maybe you could be after watching this game and talking about this game. But thank you for crying with us on Rico Brown. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.